Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Underwear, armpit hair, many imitators, but no one compares. Badass Women's Hour XL with Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell, and Emma Sexton on Talk Radio. One, two, three, four. Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour podcast. Three women, one podcast, and a whole load of badass with me, Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell, and Emma Sexton. This week, we meet the extraordinary Alexandra Adams. She's the UK's first, nearly a doctor, who's both deaf and blind. She tells us how she came into medicine, uh, why she's had such a crazy life and what it's taught her, and really what facing life and death on a regular basis teaches you about our own mortality. Plus, we speak to a new campaign trying to make sure that those mental health illnesses that we don't talk about as much get the same kind of coverage and understanding. Our first guest today is Alexandra Adams. Alexandra made the news recently when she realised she was probably the first ever medical student, nearly doctor, to be both deaf and blind. Uh, She's been progressing through medical school for the last four years and trying to make it in the real world of medicine, but it hasn't always been easy. Alexandra, when you turned up uh, to medical school, you were probably the first deaf and blind student that they had experienced. What was the response like to that? It's been really mixed. So I'm in my fourth year of medical school. I've got one more year left. Um, from patients, the response has been amazing. Um, they're really sort of, you know, open to allowing me to examine them, take histories, etc. And actually, they're more interested in finding out my story because they can relate to me as a mm-hmm. person at a human yeah. level. Mm. But uh, throughout medical school, actually, the, the problems I've had is with colleagues. Um, so I can remember on my first day of placement, a senior doctor came up to me and said, imagine you're a patient would you want a disabled doctor treating you absolutely not and then I was sent home and I have another doctor come up to me and say what are you doing with the patient's cane I said well I'm really sorry but the cane's my cane I'm registered blind I'm a medical student and this doctor just looked at me in disgust and said I don't want you touching any of the patients so it's been a really mixed bag and in a way I kind of almost expected there to be some kind of, you know, raised eyebrows and, and, and stuff, because it is, it's different. It's not the norm to have someone who is deafblind on the wards. Um, but I didn't realise that the discrimination was going to be so bad. Why, 
why do you think that discrimination has happened? Is it so? Tell us. We're saying deafblind for mm. people who can't see you right now. Mm. Tell us where you are on that scale and what it means for you so in your daily life. There, there is a spectrum with, mm. with well, with any disability, I guess. Yeah. But with my vision and hearing impairment, um, the best way to describe it is that I was born with both of them, and my visual impairment is that I've got just under five percent vision in my left, none in my right, and in my left eye, I can only see centrally, so I don't okay. see on the side. Uh, and with my hearing, I have severe to profound hearing loss, uh, which surprises a lot of people, actually, because yeah. I don't sound like a stereotypically deaf mm-hmm. person. But when I take my hearing aids out, I am completely, utterly deaf, which is a great thing because I can ignore people <laughs> when I want to. <laughs> so so that is that is my spectrum of my disability. And, yeah, it's just, it's really difficult because I think for people that don't understand the disability because they don't have it themselves it's i can understand it it's impossible to imagine having a doctor that can turn up take blood from your veins or you know listen yeah. to your heart but actually there are so many ways and it's not i mean even well amongst most of my colleagues it, it's not a malicious thing it is purely because they just don't understand it it's like this oblivious ignorance mm. um as to what what needs to be done and how things need to be approached. In a way, because it's not a normal um, topic of conversation, mm-hmm. I think people are just scared, yeah. um, scared to sort of face it and say, oh, you know, what do we do with this disabled person? Yeah. And you know. do, you, do you have to have any um, different ways of adapting medical tests or the way that you examine patients? So, yeah, I mean, there's lots of equipment that I've discovered along the way throughout medical school that, can help me so for instance um with a stethoscope because i can't take my hearing aids out because i'll be completely deaf i cannot hear through a normal stethoscope and um, but i have this amazing piece of kit from america and it's a bluetooth stethoscope so it's literally just um for those at home that that can imagine a normal stethoscope it's literally just the end and i uh, flick a switch on my hearing aid it goes to sort of the the bluetooth section and then I can listen to people's hearts and lungs wow. without even putting anything in my ears. Actually, people, well, particularly the children, yeah. think that I've got super hearing, which is always good. <laughs> I just need my extra specs now. <laughs> but, um, but no, there are there are plenty of gadgets out there. But actually, a lot of the time, the basic stuff, like um, taking blood or mm. inserting cannulas, is about knowing what to do, for yeah. starters. And a lot of it is about feeling it's, it's about touch and, and knowing your anatomy and actually because i'm visually impaired i i know it be- i need mm-hmm. to know it better than most people um i could in theory take blood with my eyes closed and it's because my sense of touch is far better than other people because that's what i've had to rely on mm-hmm. as a visually impaired person and so that's what i was going to ask Do, have, have none of the doctors pointed out um, the benefits. So I immediately thought, okay, there's a, there's an empathy that mm. you will have with mm. patients for a start that other doctors may or may not have. Mm. Um, your uh, heightened sense of touch will be different. And just what you said around Bluetooth, I bet that's a much better listening experience than doing it through a stethoscope, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. So it, it actually picks up, I mean, with a stethoscope, it picks up more sound than the normal stethoscope. It's yeah. really, really high tech. So actually... I hear far more than I need to um, at the level that I am as a fourth-year medical student. But I don't know. It's just, I mean, I've had some amazing colleagues um, who have been really, really good, you know, on the wards, but some of them are really, like... I think they just they don't want to accept that there's other ways because yeah. they may be used to the traditional 
way of doing medicine, being yeah. a doctor. Yeah. Um, you know, I went to the USA in 2017 in search of blind and deaf doctors because I have. I, I, you know, I've got to be realistic. I'm a very optimistic person, but I had to make sure that what I was doing was really possible, mm. really doable. And I met five completely blind doctors, more, more blind than me, and completely deaf doctor as well. And it was interesting because the biggest difference out there wasn't the um, the technology or the use of gadgets. It wasn't necessarily the financial situation that they were in or the mm. healthcare system. Mm. The, f- the biggest difference was actually that their colleagues were more willing to sit down yeah. and say, do you know what, OK, you've got a disability, but how can we accommodate for you in the best way possible so that you can fulfil in your career? Mm. It's all about communication and teamwork. Yeah, mm. and do you think also today, because we have so much technology um, now that is in the processes and in the way that we diagnose, diagnose actually it's probably a better time for mm. somebody like yourself to be able to go into the medical profession. Absolutely. Um, you know, like, like you said, I mean, I think I'm in, I'm in Wales at the moment and I think to some extent the Welsh NHS are a little behind. So we are very much still on pen and paper on the ward round, whereas to down here I, I've been a patient in, in a London hospital and they go around with a computer on wheels and it is is literally just the the kind of the basics of of upcoming technology that mm. can really benefit not just people like me but everyone mm. so as soon as we start using these gadgets universally then medicine as a career will become more accessible to everyone including people like myself with sensory impairments mm-hmm. what made you want to become a doctor very good question. <laughs> so uh, this is this is classic medical school interview question. <laughs> yeah. um, so I didn't always want to be a doctor. And I think it was because when I was younger, well, when you're a kid, you always um, look up to other people and you, you naturally take on the advice. So if someone says, oh, you can't be a doctor because you're visually and hearing impaired, then you kind of take that. Um, but I always knew that I wanted to go into a field that involved caring for people. Um, but then I ended up in hospital for a year and a half. Um, so I had stomach surgery. Um, it was an elective surgery to to essentially get me back swimming because I was on the GB swimming team and I was having some really bad problems with my stomach and, and, and respiratory problems as well. And, and this surgery was supposed to you know, cure everything and get me back into the water. Unfortunately, it went terribly wrong and they ended up having 20 stomach surgeries in that year. Wow. Um, And I was just, I was bedbound for the entire time um, on epidurals, morphine, everything. And it was interesting because it was when I was in the the patient in the bed that I really, I had a lot of time to waste and I had a lot of time to observe and Mm. see what made the good doctors and what made the bad doctors. And I can remember clearly every single day, the morning ward round, a huge bunch of doctors would come round and they would stand at the invisible line that Mm. separated the end of the bed, you know, between them and and me. And not once did they look at me, you know, and just Mm. say, this is what's going on, Alexandra, this is is what's going to happen next. And then they moved on to the next patient. And I was, what, 16, 17? And the hospital I was in, I was, I was deemed as, as being an adult. So I wasn't on a paediatric ward. I was on a general surgical ward. And the majority of patients had dementia. So you can imagine I was really... So I was a teenager. I was really, really isolated. But there was this one doctor that came back and she asked me probably the three most important, important words that any patient wants to hear. And they were, are you OK? 
Well, obviously, that was the first time anyone had asked me that question in a very long time. And I burst into tears and I said, no. And I told her how frightened I was. And, and she just smiled, she got up and she closed the curtains around the bed. She said, I know how you feel. And all of a sudden, she just lifted up her blouse, which is not something the doctor does every day. <laughs> but she showed me a huge scar along her ribs. And so she'd been in hospital at a similar period to me, a similar age. And not only had she taught me that she was giving me empathy, but she also taught me that I would have a ton of this empathy mm. to give if I chose to be a doctor in the future and, and, and give back to my patients. So I think, really, it was kind of... It, that was the turning point. It was, do you know what? I'm having this terrible life experience right now, but I can turn it round and mm. make good use of it to help others. Alexandra, you're incredible. We're going to keep talking to you here on Badass Women's Hour. Badass Women's Hour is Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell and Emma Sexton. Three women, one podcast and a whole load of badass. As long as Mercury isn't in retrograde. Alexandra, before the break, we were talking about your experience of the healthcare system mm. and being in hospital, going through 20-odd stomach operations. And that happened because you were a GB swimmer. Mm-hmm. So... You clearly have a level of grit and resilience. Tell us about life when you were young. So you were born, as you said, with hearing and eyesight impairment. Mm-hmm. And yet you still made it onto the GB team for swimming and skiing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, as, as a kid, I mean, lots of people ask me this question. I think as I was growing up, life was fairly normal. I think I think my parents tried to make sure that I had as normal a childhood as possible and that I did everything that any other child at that age would do. So they got me involved in sport, um, music, brownies, you know, everything. Um, so for me, I didn't really see myself as being any different. I didn't see my disability as being any different. But I actually I come from a family of swimmers. Well, apart from my mum, who kind of just drove us back and forth to the <laughs> side. But no, my my dad and my, my sister were really um, sort of involved swimmers, and the house permanently smell of chlorine, you know. And and I I don't really know how it all happened, but I just naturally found myself in a position where I was competing. And then when I was eleven, I, I think actually I was still in. I was still in primary school and I went to my first national championships and I came away with five gold and one silver and broke a few records. And I think from there, someone from the swimming team said, oh, you know, would you be interested in in taking this further? Which is kind of what I did. And, And naturally, it just kind of went in that direction. So I spent most of my teenage years before ending up in a hospital, um as an athlete so I would get up at 4 four thirty in the morning go training swimming training come back dry my hair go to school come back do my homework because if I didn't do my homework mm-hmm. I wouldn't go swimming training in the evening <laughs> wow and that was my life day in day out um and you know I, I mean did you enjoy that I think, oh, it's such a chore but mm-hmm. you know I loved it and I got to really I, I got to travel everywhere for competitions mm-hmm. um and it, and it was my life. So as you can probably imagine, when I ended up in hospital and and afterwards when I came out, I suddenly realised that actually that was my sporting career mm, well and yeah. truly over. Um, so I, I had to adapt um, considerably. And then with the skiing, I mean, that's another long story in itself, but um, I essentially, I came out of hospital when I was, I was nearly 18 
and I wasn't accepted back into a school because that, that is school leaving age. So my only option was to go to a residential school for, for blind students. And I'd gone from being completely dependent, bedbound for that year and a half, to moving away entirely from home, four hours away, and not only, you know, having to sort of teach myself my A-level subjects because, unfortunately, they, they didn't really sort of push students into university at the school. Um, I had to do my own shopping, washing, cleaning, cooking. So I, I, I literally went, you know, from being completely <laughs> dependent to really independent. And it was when I was at that school that they said, oh, hey, there's an opportunity to, to go on a ski trip. And my family have, have never been to the mountains, let alone skiing. And I thought, oh, this, this sounds like a challenge. You know, I like a little bit of an extreme <laughs> sport. Let, let's give it a go. And within a week, I learned how to ski. I had someone who well, taught me to put my feet on skis, but also guided me because when I ski, I don't see anything. I just see white. I don't see the depth or I don't see when we're about to fall off the side of the mountain, you know, <laughs> which is a good thing, actually, I think. Um, and it's great. And we communicated via Bluetooth headsets in the helmets. And I came away from that trip and thought, whoa, you know, I, I really enjoyed that. And then two months later, I found out that the the gentleman who had taught me how to ski and who had guided me, he died. He died in an avalanche. And you would think that actually that would really scare me. Um, I mean, I was I was really sad, but actually it made me more determined to carry mm. on the sport that he had introduced me to, mm. to loving. And so I decided just to, just for the fun of it, really, to go to an indoor uh, ski centre. And I hadn't realised that throughout the whole time when I was just having fun, just going up and down, mm. you know, um, that there was someone in the corner watching me and said, oh, you know, you're visually impaired. How long have you been skiing for? And I said, well, actually, this is this is my second time on skis. And he goes, oh, would you be interested in, in taking it further? Like, I've got contacts and, you know, we can get you on, on the team and you can compete. And I was like, OK, go on then. <laughs> you know, just let's, let's give it a go. So, uh, so, yeah, that's kind of how it all <laughs> Just like I that. And, and it's funny yeah. you bring that up, actually because I, and again, I can talk about this in more detail in a bit, but I, I've i recently been diagnosed with another condition which has landed me in intensive care 17 times to date. And consequently, I, I did end up having to, to stop skiing competitively. But at the beginning of 2020, I thought, you know what, I really need to, I want to set myself another challenge. I want to, you know, restart the things that I enjoy doing, mm -hmm. the things that I love. And I thought, well, as soon as I get a weekend free, I'm going to go skiing. You know, I'm just going to do it. And I literally, I came back this Monday <laughs> from Austria. I went skiing. Uh, it was great. For, I only skied for two days, but it was so nice because I just, I love that the idea of freedom mm. and speed. You know, I can't see what's coming before me. I literally have no clue. <laughs> wow. But actually, that, I think that's better. I think that's the best way, actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As somebody who can see, I tell you, it's very scary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, this, you've now been diagnosed with something else. Tell us about that. So I I started getting some really bad respiratory problems. So I would sort of just go into respiratory arrest at the spur of the moment. So no warning whatsoever. And so I've ended up in intensive care quite a few times. And they've done a few tests. And I mean, it's not been a straightforward thing. And they, they it's taken a long time. But they're thinking there's something going on at a cellular level. So mitochondria, which is kind mm. of the battery to your cells. So essentially... I'm told that if I overexert, yeah. then my body just decides to shut down completely. But the thing is, I have no idea what they mean by overexert. Do they mean don't <laughs> run a marathon? Yeah. Or do they mean don't walk down the street? Mm. And I really do not know. So 
again, that's just been another um, sort of dramatic lifestyle change I've had to adapt to. Um, and actually, it you know, very, a lot you know, very high chances that it could happen again. And I just have to almost be prepared, but at the same time, not let it affect my life mm. from every day. You know, I can still go out and enjoy stuff. I just need to accept that this is what could happen, and you've just got to deal with it in the moment. Um, and it's been it's been really difficult at times because obviously I'm at medical school and I'm doing all this other stuff, and you know when I do have a and I call it a blip. I mean it's, they're quite big blips, yeah. but it's just having to like rebuild yourself um, mm. each time. I mean I I had a particularly bad uh, admission last summer, um, so I was in Italy on my third girls' holiday. And I, long story short, I got sepsis and respiratory <gasps> failure and pneumonia and I was on life support for three weeks. And my parents were told that I would return to the UK in a box. And they had to fly out to come and see me. And they, they flew into Genoa and they drove down in a hire car to the first hospital I was in before I was transferred to a hospital in Milan. Mm. And I don't know if you've you heard about it in the news, but they, they went over a bridge in Genoa which collapsed <gasps> and killed 43 people uh. just three hours before it went. And so obviously that happened. That was traumatic for my parents, mm. let alone, you know, being told that their daughter was, you know, pretty much on the brink. Um, but I had hideous delirium and to this day I still can't describe how real delirium is um mm. it, it it's like a nightmare but so much more it's like a nightmare in 4d so wow. you feel it you smell it you hear it you taste <gasps> it and I can remember vividly even now when I'm describing it to you um I genuinely thought I was in a plane crash and I had been spewed out onto the the airport runway and I can feel the heat of the concrete, but I can't move. I then thought I was hanging off the edge of the building for weeks. Um, I was constantly asking the, the hospital staff, please pull me back off, off, the, off the side. And then I was in my own coffin, and I was genuinely convinced that I was at my own funeral, and everything was getting colder and whiter, and I can just remember hearing crying in the background. But do you know what? I was so weak and so exhausted... I'd almost got to that point where I'd accepted that I was, I was leaving the world. I was going, and it was so, so real. And that was probably my worst. I mean, I've had quite a few intensive care admissions yeah. since then. I had I had two before Christmas actually, but that was probably my worst by far. All of this stuff <sighs> happening. What does it? What understanding does it give you about life? Because I feel like, as a doctor anyway, I feel mm. like doctors have a different understanding, really, of life and death because they are confronting it every single day. Mm. And mm. then you looking at your life, which has been a series of, you shouldn't be able to do this, this shouldn't be possible, this can't be happening, it's not going to look like this, it's not going to work in this way, and you're just being like, and knocking that one, and knocking that one, and knocking <laughs> that one. <laughs> what has it given you as a kind of, I guess, a life philosophy? That is a very deep question and I love these kind of questions because <laughs> I could literally talk for England and Wales about this and it is really interesting I mean it's definitely taught me a lot about um, other people mm-hmm. and patients particularly from the perspective of a medical student and future doctor you know it really has helped me think you know when I go and see this patient in hospital not just oh what's their blood test for that or what's mm-hmm. their CT scan showing it's how are they feeling psychosocially how are mm-hmm. they how are they emotionally? Um, because we will never know, you know, as as experienced as we become, you know, in, in the job, we will never 
you know, 100% personally know what that person's going through and you just have to be able to sit down and, and say, I sympathise. But actually, mm. in my you know, perspective, I am able to empathise mm. at some points. But for me, I mean, lots of people ask me this, you know, mm. if, if you could change everything, if you could stop all these really bad things happening, would you go back and change them? And I've always said no, because actually as, as traumatic as some of them have been, they have given me this really valuable life experience which I, I see as a gift mm. and actually it's 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 given me more strength and sort of well experience mm. as a person which I really I really cherish and actually you know what it, it teaches you the fact that you know life life goes on you know and there are some things in life you cannot control and you just have to be able to accept it and say, okay, so this has happened, I'm going to move on, I'm going to make the most of it. And I think once you're able to to have that acceptance, it makes you a lot more sort of um, a, a powerful sort mm. of in, in what you do, mm. in, in the decisions you make. And and I have got myself into so many palavras. I mean, I've travelled the world solo, and the number of times I have got lost... I mean, mm. I got lost <laughs> in a forest, I got lost in a desert, I found myself on the hard shoulder of a motorway in Hong Kong. Don't even ask me how I managed to do it. But I thought, do you know what? I can't sit on the floor and cry because that is really not going to change anything. It's mm. not going to help. I need to get up, I need to carry on walking forward because eventually you're going to end up somewhere. And hopefully that destination's a little bit better than where you, you've, you've left from. So that's kind of what it's taught me to do. Um, I just sort of carry on through life and just embrace whatever comes comes your way. Oh, great wow. philosophy. Yeah. Thank you for so much for coming in and talking to us. Alexandra, you've just been an absolute phenomenon. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us tonight but also for actually turning up and saying do you know what I think I might be able to make a difference in some people's lives and I'm going to do it and I think anyone who's in your care is incredibly lucky yes so thank thank you you for having me amazing Alexandra Adams just blowing all our minds there millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom like Evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. 
thank you for listening to Badass Women's Out. You can hear us every Saturday on Talk Radio from 7pm for a full three hours, yes, three hours of opinion, debate and general setting the world to rights. Now, let's get back to our guest. We are talking about mental health and we talk about mental health a lot on this show, but in particular we talk about um, kind of the simple ways to get around it. So we talk about mindfulness, we talk about making sure that you're talking to someone and being there for people who are going through it. And yet, despite our growing awareness as a society around mental health, uh, people, 27% of people with a less common mental health problem, such as schizophrenia, BPD and psychosis, feel discrimination against them has increased in the last 10 years. Mm. Here to talk about it with us is Joe Loughran, Director of Time to Change. Hi, Joe. Good evening. Nice to be here. Why do we think uh, the um, why do we think that people facing well for a start BPD? I wanted to say bipolar disorder. Is that correct? Is uh, that borderline personality? Borderline disorder. personality disorder. Thank you. Um, why do people feel that discrimination has increased? Because surely, if we've been talking about it more. Mm. We should be more open. We should. So basically, Time to Change have been working for the last um, 12 12 years, really, to get us talking more about um, mental health problems. So we definitely know that we're talking about depression and we're talking about um, OCD. But what we think is happening is that, and the research is telling us, is that people are experiencing more less common um, conditions like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder or psychosis are not necessarily benefiting from the improvement in attitudes that we've seen over the last 12 years um, since we've been working at Time to Change. So a good example of that is when we ask people about um, depression, for example, mm -hmm. they could tell us what depression was. They could maybe talk about some of the symptoms that were involved in that. But when we ask them about uh, schizophrenia or bipolar, only 50% of people had either ever heard of that or knew and were able to tell us a little bit about maybe what one of those symptoms might be. So you can see there's a disparity there. So what we're trying to do now is we're really trying to showcase those conditions. So we've got some fantastic stuff on the Time to Change website. We've got three wonderful films, um, Billy, Jason and Antonio, who are really talking about what it's like to live with those conditions. And can you give us a little bit of wh what it is we mean when we talk about things like schizophrenia or borderline personality disorder or psychosis? Because they seem like very big words, I guess. I think when we think of schizophrenia, probably for most of us, our experience of that is what we see on TV or on film, which is very much sensationalised. And, and there's the key. So that's the, mm. the so the so the issue that we that we have is that if we don't know anything, then that stigma is really fed by a lack of knowledge and a lack of mm. understanding. So what we want to really do is we want to be able to humanise the experiences so that we can see that um, that there are, these are people who are experiencing conditions and that's part of who they are. It doesn't define who they are. So yes, you're right. Lots of stuff that we have um, we take um, you know facts and figures from maybe sensationalist headlines or from films so the best place to do to get more information is to go onto the website so time to it's time-to-change.org.uk and from there you can then also get some um, information on rethink mental illness website and also the mind website which tells you a little bit more, more about the facts of what all of those conditions are now so we have actually spoken about this on the show before um, from uh, we were talking about mental health and the fact that uh, actually there are lots of mental health conditions that aren't, see, I'm going to say, quote, palatable. 
And I think it's partly because we've got to a place where you've got your, your Love Islanders and lots of glossy folks saying, I, I suffer from anxiety, and almost making it more palatable. But what we don't have is people actually talking about um, forms of, of mental health conditions that in the public minds might be seen as more dangerous. And again, mm. I'm, I'm quoting more dangerous. Mm. Um, and that, for me, is possibly where the conversation around mental health hasn't gone so far. And from my own experience and from family experience, there's a large a large number of, of black men that have been sectioned and in hospitals with schizophrenia or personality disorder, and they are totally forgotten and left behind. Um, and they're not given the same loving embrace or column inches that say you know, a young, gorgeous, pretty woman who's suffered from anxiety for X number of years has. And they probably won't ever be given those column inches or listened to in the same way either. And so how do we really get people that are standing on those platforms talking about their mental health, I'm quoting their mental health, talking about mental health for everyone? Yeah, because the only person, celebrity, that mm -hmm. I can think of that that had, you know, one of these more extreme um, disorders is Kerry Katona, who's bipolar. Frank, uh, Frank Bruno. Oh, well. Frank Bruno. But I okay. remember when Frank Bruno mm -hmm. um, came out in the press maybe five, six years ago, oh, maybe longer. I remember depression for him. What was he? Did he have something? Was he schizophrenic no, as well? No, he, he, so going into it, there were... Uh, it was it was broader than just depression. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, but I even remember Kerry Katona because mm. she you know she did that famous interview on this morning where she'd mm. taken her her um, drugs for her her uh, mental illness and she got so much stick for that. I, I don't I don't remember seeing any empathy or understanding mm. for her bipolar condition and you know just a lot of misunderstanding, misunderstanding, judging mm. her, mm. assuming that she was drunk when she did that interview and not believing it was the drugs. So mm. there aren't those role models. You're right. We're not seeing those those stories at all. And I think really what we've got to do is we've got to be able to change that kind of societal norm. So we've seen that with depression and we've seen that with anxiety and with those sorts of conditions. And we've worked really, really hard to make that happen. And that's what this piece of research really suggests is that is that actually what we need to do is is to is to start doing what we've done with those conditions mm. mm -hmm. over the last 12 years, mm. replicate that for some of these, um, you know, less common conditions mm. so that we do have the ability to have role models. We have the ability to have individuals who aren't famous because mm. we don't we don't always need people to be famous mm -hmm. um, who are willing to kind of, you know, step up and talk without the fear that they're going to be treated negatively. And of course, until we've got a society where people feel confident they're not going to be mm. treated negatively, then we won't get case studies uh, coming forward. Forward. It feels like we're at that that tension point that we've had with with everything, with people coming out of being gay, with you know people who've um, drug um, addicts. That it's this stage when there's no one. Mm. It's of such takes such bravery for people to step forward and really own their story yeah. because when you don't have an empathetic society, the backlash mm. for that can mm. be extreme. And if you're if you can't afford that backlash, yeah. like you know, then who's going to take that step? So you know, I'm just thinking, what are the other ways that that we can do that without people having to put their kind of almost like their lives on the line to move us forward but it's really really interesting because because whilst we say that and i totally agree with you we've got to make it safe for people to be able to speak up and speak out and yet we've got a whole raft of people who have been willing to talk about 
the experiences that we've had with these less common conditions. And we've certainly been placing stories for since we began on these conditions. It's mm -hmm. not like we've just been ignoring yeah. it. But it's really interesting. So the take-up from the media is often less uh, for... If you say, well, we want to place somebody who's going to talk about schizophrenia. And that is a reflection of the societal norm that says that that's a little bit out there, it's a little mm. bit different. Mm -hmm. and, and, and some of that comes from our own experiences of... Uh, if we think about uh, anxiety, for example, or depression, we've all had days where we felt a bit down. We've all had times where we've been anxious about stuff. Coming on here today is one of those for me. <laughs> uh, so, so, but we can identify then, if we then think about moving that into, well, if that was something that was clinical depression or mm -hmm. something that was really, really worrying me, mm -hmm. I, can th I can make that leap and make that step. If I'm uh, experiencing schizophrenia and I'm hearing voices and those voices might be positive or they might be negative, that's a quite a leap for mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm. So so the whole point of, of this as a, as a particular campaign in this week is to try to get people to understand the human nature of living with this as part of your uh, human experience mm. and that that then closes what in a technical term closes that kind of social distance so we don't think the first thing that comes in our head isn't Maddox murderer it's Billy who was on uh, you know who was on uh, the time to change website who talked about what it was like to live with the positives and the negatives and how she coped with uh, you know the, the, the just living with that as a condition mm. as part of her life so if we can do that that's really really helpful and then of course there's the other bits and pieces around education so the work that we've been doing at time to change in schools is really really important because mm -hmm. that helps us to make that kind of first kind of inroad if we can get to people young if we can start talking about this like it's every day and ordinary because we want people to understand that this for lots of people is their everyday and, and everyday mm -hmm, ordinary mm -hmm. it's not easy um, but it is what they live with if we can start to do that through education that's brilliant if we can go into workplaces as we have done with depression and anxiety and say yeah. what are the reasonable adjustments that you're making in your workplace mm -hmm. what are your policies and procedures around people who might need to take some time off work with a mental health problem regardless of what that condition is then that's how we start to kind of erode um, this, um, these misconceptions and these myths and replace them with facts. And that's really, really key. Mm. And if there's one thing that in particular employers could do to help people living with these conditions who are working for them, what would your suggestion be? How do you start that conversation in the workplace? So again, online, loads of brilliant tips about starting conversations. So we've been um, we've been working with employers really for the last five or six years. So they um, are able to sign up to a, to what we call our time to change pledge, and that's all about thinking about. How are you adopting your policies and procedures? How are you training your line managers? How are you making your workplace a mentally healthy place to be? Mm. How are you encouraging people to speak out? So we've had a lot of senior leaders who will speak out about their personal experience. Mm. That's one of the most powerful things. Because I think the fear often comes from saying, OK, I'm experiencing this, and what's the negative backlash going to be, as mm. you mentioned? What's the negative backlash going to be for me? If a senior leader, if a chief executive within an organisation is willing to step up and talk about it, then everybody else in that organisation goes, well, one, this is, a, this is the kind of place I want to work, and two, if I talk about it, 
I know from the top that mm. it's going to get um, taken seriously and that I'm not necessarily going to be in uh, a place where there's going to be negative repercussions because I've spoken out. Mm. So it's all about that kind of reasonable adjustments, the ability for people to be able to talk about it, to be able to say, this is what my experience is, and by the way, this is what helps if... I'm experiencing a mental health problem. Here are all the things that would be supportive and helpful for me. Um, and these are the kinds of things that might trigger. Um, and this is what you need to look out for. And this is how I would prefer to be treated um, within the workplace if that if that were to happen. Mm. Joe, thank you so much for joining us. Joe Loughran there, Director of Time to Change, talking about how we can start to bring some of those less common uh, but just as important um, mental health issues into our daily lives and really talk about them in the same way that we now talk about things like depression and anxiety. You've been listening to Badass Women's Hour. If you like the show, then help more people find us. You can tag us or talk to us on social media using at Badass Women's Hour. Or you can be really lovely and leave us a review and a rating. Five stars, please. It helps boost us up the podcast rankings and allows other people to find us. We'll be back next week with more Badass guests and in-depth chat. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.